You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Monday, November 4th, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. And we have a special guest rogue this week, Fraser Kane. Fraser, welcome back to the SGU. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me back. The whole show. I feel so honored. Yes, the whole show. <laughs> so, Fraser, you're the publisher of Universe Today. That is that is correct. So far, great. so good. Yeah, yeah, which I do read all the time. It's actually a great source. I scroll through it every day. Oh, you great. Know, that's where I troll for my oh, astronomy yeah. news. Perfect. Yeah, it's a really great resource. We do this only for you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for curating all my astronomy news for that's me. That's what he said to me last time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Number of clicks each day, one. You want to hear something crazy? Uh, we just yeah. passed the 20-year mark. Oh, that God. is crazy. Yeah, yeah. so we, we passed 20 years back in March, actually. So we're closing in on 21 years of, of me doing this job. Wait, is that 20, 20 years online? Tw- no, 21 years of publishing Universe Today online okay. on the interwebs, yeah. Whoa, on the interwebs. Yeah. That makes me feel really old. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I've been doing this job for 20 years now. Yeah, you're ancient. No, but that's amazing. Like, I we were just connected to the interwebs when I was in school, in college. So, well, the early 90s. Some of us were already deep out. into our careers. <laughs> yeah, but that's not really when people were reading things like Universe Today online. True. Yeah. That's when World Wide Web was born. That, that's such a yes, huge but milestone. Most people didn't use it. You know, a lot of times, like, yeah, this happened in 8990. I'm like, that was before the web it's like it's such a milestone <laughs> in my history. i still have my CompuServe address <laughs> i don't get email anymore though so it's a you came on the show this week in a funny way so actually we're yeah, doing the show this early good. this is the the show's coming out on 11 23 november 23rd we're recording on the 4th because we are going to be we'll be leaving for our trip down under when the show is coming out and we need to get a few shows ahead so i needed to record an extra episode and we can't do like just straight up news item show because it's going to be three weeks out of date by the time it comes out. And then I got an email from some guy named Visto Tutti. Visto said, Hey, it's been a long time. It's been almost a decade since you had Fraser Kane on the show. When I suggested he be a guest again on the SGU, his exact response was anytime, anywhere. Then he starts going into logistics and topics and everything. And I'm like, okay, so this is like, he works for you. Cause I get these emails all the time. Like, yeah. So I said, yeah, sure. Let's book, I have an opening Monday. Let's book him for Monday. And then you sent me like this, like curious email to me. So I'm, I'm coming on the show. <laughs> I spoke to your agent on email. Didn't he tell you? <laughs> he, he is, he's not my agent, just a fan, a very yeah. organized, very uh, proactive <laughs> fan. And I wish I had, you know, I mean, don't we all wish we had more of those? That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, but oh, he did wow. be told, I don't know if it was deliberate on his part or if he's just that kind of person, but he came off like official, like he was working for you. I, I and clearly he needed you. a job. He quoted you, so he must have <laughs> spoken to you at some point or just because he sent you an email and said, hey, you want to go on the SGU? I believe my response was anytime, anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> <Right. laughs> <laughs> or did he just make that up? You know? No, no, no. That's, 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 that sounds like something I would say. Okay. So you're assuming you said that at some point. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that was funny because he totally took totally. Yeah. I just assumed he was, you know, working for you. <laughs> so thanks Brilliant. for getting me on the show, Visto. 
<laughs> no, but it was it was perfect because you were thinking, oh god, we got to, you know, we should pull somebody in, you know, one of our friends for uh, for Monday. It was just good timing. So we're going to spend the whole show talking about cool astronomical topics. Not that we always talk about astronomy items on the show. It's one of the one of the our favorite fields. Uh, so it's nothing unusual to have a sh- an entire show full of astronomy topics. There's plenty to talk about. So, but we're going to start, we're going to bookend it with some usual SGU segments. And Kara, you're going to start us off with a, an astronomically themed what's the word? Yes. So when we were first emailing about doing the show this week, you were like, we're going to be talking about space. And then I started looking at all of my notes and trying to come up with some complicated astro terms, there are, of which there are many. Um, I asked Bob to email me some ideas, and he did not. And I ended up settling on the word space. Didn't even see your email. Sorry. <laughs> I'm the king of space. I mean, What's that from? I'm the space boat. I don't know. What is that from? That's from the, the dark Simpsons? mirror. Dark oh. mirror. Uh, <laughs> I was like, usually I'm correct. The, if I guess the Simpsons. Yeah, the Cal- Calypso episode. Callisto. Oh, you mean Black Mirror? Yeah, Black Mirror. Yeah, what did I say? Uh, dark Mirror. I always say Dark Mirror. We do that <laughs> all the time. Why? Black I was mirror. like, are you talking about some vintage sci-fi <laughs> dark matter, show? dark heard. energy? It's all the same. Whatever. <laughs> space too. It's all the same. <laughs> I opened up a big can of worms when I was like, yeah, let's do space. That's an easy one. It's a word oh we God. all use. Um, pretty sure that on Merriam-Webster, there are 10 definitions of space as just a noun. Um, Oxford English is bananas. When you mm-hmm. tr- really start to dig in, this is like, I think, probably 40 pages of content in Oxford English Dictionary oh just on space. So, um, yeah, as a noun, space has several definitions. It's even used as a verb. The yeah. m- most interesting thing that I found out as I was starting to dig through, um, mostly I-, I decided to take it from an etymological kind of um, angle. You know, how did it first come into be? And when did it start being used to refer to outer space, since that's a little bit more relevant for our discussion today? And I was surprised that space, as it refers to outer space or this intergalactic space or interplanetary space or any of these astronomical terms is actually relatively new. The word space from its earliest usage referred more to room, like area. Yeah. And it also had, this is the really interesting part, a similar and equivalently used definition of a period of time or an interval of time. So long before Einstein, space and time were the same word. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense intuitively now, I think, with everything we know, but it's actually kind of an interesting thing that as we developed this language to try and describe room or area or what was around us, we were also seeing that concept as an interval or a distance of time. So... We saw these things popping up around the year 1300. Um, The earliest known origin is actually Latin from spatium. And then that sort of evolved into an old French uh, phrase, espace. And we're not really sure where the Latin came from before that. Um, The trail seems to be lost. But when we start to talk about space from an astronomy sense... 
Some people will say that the first reference was in Paradise Lost by Milton, and that would be from 1667. But we started to see it regularly used in the 1700s to describe emptiness, quote unquote, which we now know it's not empty, between celestial objects. And some kind of more modern usages, space age wasn't used until 1946. Spaceship was, wasn't used until 1894. Spacecraft in 1928. Space, well, that one's kind of silly. A Spaceman, 1942. What about Space Invaders? I don't know about Space 1977. Invaders. Yeah, I mean, probably when the game was <laughs> developed. Um, and so it's kind of interesting to look at how the definition has changed. So obviously the first um, definition, as I mentioned, had to do with uh, distance or area or volume, but e at the exact same time or very similar in time, we saw space used as a definition of a period of time or an interval of time. So those things were exchangeable there. Then we started to see a space as a musical term. So spaces were above or below the lines of a staff. Then we started to see space used in a more kind of scientific way as physical space. So not just like the space in an area or my space to move from point A to point B, but actually scientifically as physical space, um, independent of what's inside of it. And not until halfway through our definition. So the fifth definition in Merriam-Webster, and of course they are listed in terms of, by usage, the fifth definition is the region beyond the Earth's atmosphere. Um, and then we see space used in fifth. all sorts of specific places. Like if you go to the Wikipedia page for the disambiguation of the word space, I can't even tell you, there are so many bullet points. There's different, okay, it's used in art and architecture, film, gaming, literature, music, nightclubs. There are nightclubs called space, um, theaters and concert halls, TV, computing, keyboarding, printing, places. And of course, in science and mathematics, we see that use. Um, so it's, I, I think probably the thing that was the, the coolest to me was this idea that space and time have been inextricably linked since we first started using this as a linguistic label. And then, of course, that came full circle when we started to explore re relativity. And um, lastly, I will say that what kind of a lot of people now use as the current definition of quote unquote space or specifically outer space is that it's the zone that occurs about 60 miles or 100 kilometers above the planet. And that's where we're not seeing air. So we're not seeing light being scattered or no appreciable air, not enough oxygen to scatter light. That's when it goes from blue to black. Um, that's when we start to see the near vacuum. So we start to um, lose the ability to hear. And to breathe. And, and, and to breathe, yeah. We, <laughs> that, is that, is that, so that's the demarcation when, when the sky goes from looking blue to looking black? Well, it's basically where it's beyond the, what they say, the appreciable atmosphere. And, and also some people have defined it because I've looked in, there are different definitions um, based on different outlets. But they also say it's the place where satellites won't fall. There's not enough drag. Right. Yeah. The drag's not yeah, there. Yeah. There's yep. kind of that Makes demarcation sense. line. Yeah. yeah so that's yeah. A good practical demarcation. I think it's amazing that the human brain can seamlessly understand the context of the word mm -hmm. and, and you don't even, you don't even realize in the front of your mind that your brain is deciding how it wants to apply what meaning to the usage of the word. 
Yeah, you don't have to make a cognitive or a, an overt decision to do that. It's just, you know, if there's enough context in the conversation, it, yeah. you're right. It's completely seamless. It's all about context. All right. Well, Fraser, we want to talk about outer space. Uh, yeah, I only I only answer to one of those terms. You know, outer space. What What about space cadet? Space, sure. That's yeah, as long <laughs> as you are in outer space, part of space force. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Oh, no, space force. no, please no. <laughs> oh, did this get political? Did I watched right. that when I was a kid. Or yeah, something? yeah. I love space force <laughs> and the marionettes. I think. <laughs> right. Totally. Those were cool. Oh yes. Oh, you know what that's called? Isn't that called super marionation? Mm-hmm. It's the only it's the way to real realistically depict space travel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With like meteors hanging from like, swinging Spring. from threads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, that technique. was the one I was saying. Like when they had the spaceship flying through, you know, the fake outer space, like uh, mobile. You know, yeah, you could see the smoke going up. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like the, the ship is flying perpendicular, like horizontal, but the smoke is going up. It's like you know, guys, come on. <laughs> Did they have- that was totally fake. I don't believe that at all. <laughs> the part that's crazy, though, is that SpaceX, the Starship, kind of looks like those spaceships. So oh. everything is just coming full circle. <laughs> yeah, we just talked about we that. Were... Like, how cool is that, though? Are you kidding me? And retro rockets. Retro. Who the hell thought that retro rockets were ever going to become a real thing? Yeah, you mean like made landing. Made of steel. Vertically. Yeah. 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 And right. made, made of stainless uh, steel. Stainless steel. Oh. We are living in the future. I yeah. tell you. <laughs> Finally, the future, like science fiction, accurately predicted the future that we're going to live in. That's right. Next decade, we'll have the Jetsons kind of things are flying all over the place. <laughs> right. I just want to be able to turn my car into a briefcase and carry it away. Well, That'd not just cool. that, but that would just that's on, that's on my my list of things I would like. I would just like a robot to clean my house. They make those. Yeah, get the well, all the, the Roomba. Floors. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. First off, no, I'm no, never. No. I am never getting a Roomba because I I read a story about someone who had one and their dog pooped in the kitchen and the Roomba smeared the entire house with poop. <laughs> so I will not. Be wow. Having, yes. You think it, they would have a poop algorithm at this point? Yeah. yeah. They may have. They may have iterated detector. the Roomba. Dog or a Roomba? Oh, you got to decide. Well, that's one of the things, isn't it? I mean, who wouldn't have thought like a quarter century ago, yeah, we'll have robots in in our household by then. And not just Roomba-level robots, but like real, you know, real bipedal butler robots. And it's like, you know, we're we're getting there for sure, but man, it's slow. (laughs) In other words, too slow for Bob. I'll be like on my deathbed and I'll, I'll see, I'll see, I'll be scrolling through Amazon. Oh yeah, there's a robot and I'm on my deathbed and I'll never yeah. get to enjoy it. Finally. <laughs> Bob, you're going to live forever, I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah that'll Bob. be your robot body. They'll be bringing it up to you, <laughs> wheeling it up. Singularity. Okay. Yeah. That would cheer me up for Bob. sure. Yeah. Bob, you'll yeah. have robotic pallbearers so that you got that going. <laughs> <laughs> he was a good man. A robot will dig the hole. <laughs> all right fraser fraser hit us with some space news what's yeah. going on in space well, how how far back in time do you want to go what do you want to talk about that's right you yeah. can't talk about space without talking about time what's that's like what's true. been in the, what's been in the news relatively recently that really gets you going that really Not intrigues relatively. you uh man let me just uh let me just look at this uh handy website universe today and see some interesting breaking <laughs> news so at the time that we're recording this Today, uh, and then people can, I guess, figure it out. Boeing did a pad abort test of their new Starliner uh, spacecraft. This is their version. So, so there's going to be two 
companies providing transportation from the United States to the International Space Station, which strangely is a thing that the United States is not able to do anymore. They mm -hmm, rely right. on their good friends, the Russians, to do this. And also, don't forget, though, it's also not only to the ISS, but also to eventually private space stations, like I think one of the, the proposed Bigelow Aerospace commercial space station. But that's just a little you know, footnote to that statement. Yeah. So obviously, it's a, it's a slight security concern in that the United States has no way to get its astronauts to and from the International Space Station and hopefully on to the moon and other places in the, the solar system. So, you know, when they wrapped up the space shuttle program, they thought they would be ready to go anytime now. So they, they picked two companies, right? SpaceX and Boeing. SpaceX built the Crew Dragon, which they did some of their tests earlier this year. Both are, have been delayed. Boeing, with their Starliner, just got to the point that they did their pad abort test uh, just today. And so they put the – this is the thing that will help the uh, humans live should there be a catastrophic accident with the rocket mm -hmm. underneath them. And so – and this is, a this is a capability that the space shuttle did not have, right? As we saw tragically, if there's anything wrong with the space shuttle, it takes the lives of the astronauts with it. And both the Boeing Starliner and the Crew Dragon from SpaceX have to be able to abort – uh, at some part way, part way through the mission. And so what they do is they have these retro rockets that fire, accelerating the capsule off the top of the rocket, and then the rocket can, you know, rockets on its own. But the astronauts are carried away to safety, and then it will deploy its parachutes and, and return back to Earth. And so uh, SpaceX has already done their demonstration of their abort system, and then they actually have flown to the International Space Station, delivered cargo with the crew dragon and then have it return back to earth and then one exploded so that was that was a setback yeah. but with the with boeing they had been falling behind and so they finally did their pad abort test and that was today and so the thing took off flew a mile above the the pad abort system deployed two of its three parachutes that was not the intention the intention was to deploy all three but then it landed uh safely back down on earth and apparently Two is fine. Two is two is nominal. Three would be mm -hmm. ideal, but it can still work on two. And, and don't forget, there's also the, the airbag cushioning system that they have, which is really fascinating. Um, and that's so that it could land on the ground, right, rather than in water. They don't need to land in water anymore. And when those two – when that thing hit the ground with the two of the three parachutes – now, remember, it's missing one parachute. It's got two parachutes and it's got the airbag cushioning. That thing – landed like a feather almost it was yeah. such a beautiful landing it really doesn't need three i think that th the third parachute is just is uh, for safety anyway you, know, you should could just try one, one. i want to have right i wonder that would yeah. be a little bit of a rough landing but this starliner was impressive i really took a, a yeah. deep look at it today it's gorgeous it is just so slick and and it's innovative as well it's, it's weldless it has no welds in the entire structure it's and it's reusable up to 10 times and then i think after 10 times it takes six months to uh, to give it a turnaround if, if i'm if i was interpreting that right um Wait, how but, did they put it together if it was weldless i think is they it all bolted i think they, they plant the seed and it just grows <laughs> 
yeah, that's got to be it. Um, crazy, crazy glue or something. But and then I'll, I'll, one more thing. It's really funny. I went wait, to the, wait. What's the answer? Yeah, I think I know. I don't think we know. I don't think we know. I, I don't know it's exactly. Magic. Yeah. But the website had a great quote. The website, the Boeing website, has Starliner uses a proven parachute and airbag system. Except, except sometimes the third one doesn't deploy, but it's proven. Um, but still, it's just kind of ironic that they have that right in their website. So, and I think when you talk to the astronauts who've flown to the International Space Station, the return on the Soyuz capsule is one of the most harrowing parts of the entire journey. They land in the steppes of Kazakhstan. Uh, the it has a it lands really hard. Hard, and they don't have very comfy seats. And right at the last minute, so it uses parachutes as well. And then right at the last minute, retro. it fires these retro rockets, but it's a really hard landing. And I've heard it described as going over Niagara Falls in a barrel, but, oh, <laughs> but with a hard landing. Ooh, so, yeah. Don't so, eat before you descend. Oh, boy. Yeah. So I'm not uh, surprised. It is not a thing that I would want to try. And when you look at how gently these new, this next generation is is coming down, I think that's that's the the way to go. Um, they found the lowest mass black hole. So they've uh, yeah. you know, astronomers have have always predicted that there'd be sort of a minimum size to a to a black hole. You've got the the black holes that are formed when stars many times the mass of our sun detonated supernova implode and you get this stellar mass black hole with around five times the mass of the sun. And then of course there are the supermassive ones which I'm sure you've talked about many times on the show with yeah. with millions, millions billions. billions of times the mass of the sun. And now astronomers think they've found what looks like the the lowest mass black hole, only 3.3 times the mass of the sun. And the problem is, is that this is like a little complicated to actually get a black hole with this little mass. And so they're thinking that it's actually located in a binary system where you've got like one star collapsing as a neutron star, and then it's feeding on material, and then finally crosses over that, that minimum threshold and collapses down to the next level, which is the, which is the black hole. And so now they, in fact, they think they've got a technique to be able to find others of these out there just based on the Doppler shift of, of when you've got the black hole orbiting in some kind of binary system with some other star and you can sort of detect as the star is being being wobbled around so yeah i recently uh, talked about this i mean yeah there was definitely a missing uh, you know missing mass uh, so to speak because i mean a neutron star has a maximum mass of say what 2.5 to 3 solar masses so between 3 and 5 there should be some uh, black holes but then we had never found any until until this one uh, but what's really interesting to me is that some astronomers were like, yeah, it, this is probably, you know, it's probably a um, a black hole. But wouldn't it be awesome if it was like a 3.3 solar mass neutron star, which would mean, of course, that that our, our calculations are off because there should never be a neutron star that doesn't collapse, you know, beyond what the, the neutron degeneracy pressure, um, you know, that shouldn't exist at 3.3 solar masses. So he said it would be more interesting if it were actually a neutron star, but it probably isn't. It probably right. is just a solar mass uh, black hole. Well, one of the really interesting ideas is this in-between stage. So this is something that's still fairly theoretical is this idea that there's something called a quark star. So, oh, yeah. right. And so you can, a white dwarf is just mashed together matter, you, you know, carbon mm-hmm. in some kind of great big crystal lattice, like one big diamond. But if you have enough temperature and pressure, you can mash that down so that the protons and the neutrons squish together and turn into the, oh, sorry, the protons and the electrons squish together. And so the entire thing is 
neutrons. But then the neutrons that's what a neutron have, star is. That's what a neutron star is. Yeah, but a neutron star has a kind of a um, – you know, it has its own, thanks to what is it, the Pauli exclusion principle, it has a, has a minimum size that it's willing to do. There's, there's a certain point that a neutron star won't allow the neutrons to be mashed to go together. Right. They essentially can't be in the same place at the same time. But if you get enough mass onto it, then it should collapse into a, into a black hole. But it's theorized that there might actually be some intermediate step, Ooh. one step down from a neutron star, but not full black hole. And that's this idea of a quark star. And so in theory, you should be able to see flashes of neutron stars that have been feeding, you know, they've been feeding on material from some binary partner, the material piles up onto it, and then it, then it hits perfectly hits that, that tipping point collapses down one level, releases a flash of energy, and now it's this idea of a of a quark, quark star. star. And then gets more mass and goes to the next one. What's the relationship between that and quark's bar? Quark's, quark's <laughs> bar? Yeah. <laughs> Question. Both a whole? I don't know. Uh, no? <laughs> so right, b- before we totally get off the space travel topic, though, I, do want, okay. I did want to talk to you about – because we didn't mention this when we were talking about this recently on the show – the uh, the saber engine, yes, Skylon saber engine. This is really neat. This the idea here is that it's like a jet engine that could go really fast and really high, right? <laughs> to to the point where you could almost like fly it into space, right? That's the idea. You probably need some kind of rocket at the end there to get once you get the atmosphere gets too thin. But and this is you know technologically very challenging. But you know the the uh, Skylon, the, the British company, is getting close apparently. I wouldn't say close. Uh, <laughs> so they passed a big, significant milestone. So the 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 holy grail of spaceflight is this yes. idea of a single stage to orbit, and and this is yeah. what our mind imagines a rocket should yeah. be. It takes off from the ground, flies up into space, does a thing, returns through the atmosphere, <laughs> lands again. But it turns out that the rocket equation makes that just barely possible. Like if you had the most efficient engine possible, uh, rocket engine, you could just barely get your, you know, with all the fuel that you have to carry without kicking stages overboard, you could just barely get to space and, and do some kind of mission and come back with very f- small payload. And so right. what, what Skyline wants to do is they want to take advantage of this idea of flying in the atmosphere using aerodynamic lift, which is more efficient, being able to bring in atmospheric oxygen as as the oxidizer for the fuel that they're carrying and then as the thing gets faster and faster it starts to bring in and you know it continues to bring in this atmospheric oxygen and then when it runs out of oxygen it it switches over to a rocket engine and flies off into space and so the entire spacecraft is called the Skylon, but the the rocket and this is the the engine which is the revolution that they're really trying to figure out is how do you build an engine that allows you to take off from the ground, fly in the atmosphere, go to hypersonic speeds, and then be able to transition into a rocket. And so the big technical accomplishment that they made this week was they were able to figure out how to bring hot air into the front of the engine and then cool it down in a fraction of a second to be able to use that as an oxidizer for the rocket fuel that they're doing. And you know, every little part of this entire process is very technically challenging. And so they were able to demonstrate that they were able to make that pre-cooler work at Mach 5 
And that's like one more step of making the Skylon work. So we are mm -hmm. still years and years and years away from this thing demonstrating actual practical single stage to orbit. But uh, the company has been – is being funded now as part of the uh, European Space Agency. So it's got some sort of serious people working on it and funding it, and they're going to keep picking away at this challenge. But it is – is a long, long way from it being an actual prototype that can fly and and achieve all of these engineering goals that they've that they've got. And when you look at what's happening with with SpaceX with the Starship, it's going to be really hard to compete against a fully reusable two stage rocket. Right? Once mm -hmm. you don't have to worry about trying to carry your entire spaceship to space, and you're able to disconnect the stages and have them fly back to earth as they run out of fuel. That's a really, really compelling model. So uh, it may very well be that the Skylon never gets off the ground. Um, if SpaceX demonstrates that that multi stage traditional rockets, but fully reusable are the way to go. Yeah, there's just so much of an advantage to a two stage to orbit versus one stage. And if that, as you say, if that second stage is reusable, that you know, that's that just may be inherently advantageous. But there is something sexy about the idea of like the entire ship just blasting off from yeah. the surface, going into space, coming back. That's like the Millennium Falcon. That's what we think of as a spaceship. You yeah, know there's that? one yeah. Uh, version. There's, there's another idea that's out there right now, which I really like. It's called the Astro Clipper, um, and it's by a company called Exodus Space. And what they're proposing is a two-stage but space plane. And so the whole thing you know, takes off from a runway – and then it flies up into the atmosphere. Same thing, uses jet, jet engines to get itself up to Mach 5. And then the, the first, and then it, then it fires its rocket engines and carries the thing up to about 100 kilometers altitude. And then the, the stages separate. And then the first stage flies back to the landing pad to, the, to a runway and, and, and lands like an airplane. And then mm -hmm. the, the, the second stage flies up into orbit, does its thing. Then it reenters the Earth's atmosphere and it lands on the landing pad. And then the two halves are joined again. And so that feels like the, the next step is that it's, an, mm -hmm. it's both a space plane, but it's also fully reusable both. And it's, and it's two stage. So I think what's exciting about this is there's just, there's just so many companies now that are trying to take a crack at this. SpaceX is really demonstrating what's possible with reusability. And I love the fact that, that we're going to see all of this. The Chinese are doing their own reusable rocket tests as well. So I think 10 years from now, all rockets are going to be reusable, and then they're going to be iterating on the fine nuances of it for smaller payloads, for bigger payloads, and, and for maybe monster payloads. And guys, yeah. there's another angle to this. You know the classic rocket engine nozzle, right? At the end, where the where exhaust gases come out. That's. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's. Yes. You, you maybe you'll be surprised to learn that 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 nozzle is actually shaped. It, it, the shape is critical, right? But the thing is, the shape is designed. The classic shape is designed for a specific altitude and atmospheric density. So that's when it's most efficient. So that means that that for the vast majority of the rocket's trip up through the atmosphere, that that nozzle is not very efficient. So that's why when you drop that first stage, the second the second stage's nozzle would be optimized more for the area of the atmosphere that it flies right. to. So 
So what they have, they have, pl- they have like they've actually created created examples of this. Like an, it's called I forget the exact name, but it's like an inverted nozzle that actually optimizes itself regardless of where you are in the atmosphere. Low, You're you know, talking about the aero spike. Yes, I think. Yeah, I think yeah. that's it. It's really bizarre looking. So it's adaptive. But, yeah. Right. So th- I just shocked that that's it. Just that that thing is not more of a priority because that really you know overcomes the limitations of that the classic rocket engine nozzle. And they did a lot of research. They put a lot of money into it. But then it kind of like uh, fell to the wayside. I think when um, when uh, the, the the shuttle was being developed and it, they never really picked it up again. It's just, yeah. It's there's one company called Arca Aerospace, and they're actually yeah. working with an aerospace with an aerospike engine. But the classic one that was done with this was the X. 34 Venture Star, X33 Venture Star, designed by Lockheed Martin. And they were, and they had actually, they did a linear aerospike. So it's one, it looks like a kind of a wedge. And you're exactly right. right. It, it inverts the, so normally with a rocket, you've got the rocket bell and the, the gases come out of the, the nozzle inside the rocket engine and they come out of the bell. And the trick is that you want to get the, the angle of this right and you get the pressure working just perfectly and the size of the bell for a when a rocket takes off from the surface is actually much smaller and then the ones that are used in vacuum are huge but at the end of the day it's kind of the same engine underneath is pushing out these gases into different shapes and so the linear aerospike brings in those gases sort of as you say in the opposite direction down this v and then it can change the angle on how this is how and how this is is exhausted depending on whether you're down at the at the surface or whether you're you know trying to use this in the vacuum and in theory then you don't need to have a difference between the rocket that you use to take off from the surface to the one that you're using up in up at vacuum but right. it's you know they did some tests as you're, you're exactly right back in the 80s and 90s and the they just haven't really progressed that technology and we should say the point of all this is just to make getting to space cheaper, right? Obviously, we could already get there. That's not the that's not the point. The point is just lowering the dollar cost of getting a pound of stuff into space, right? And right now it's like ten thousand dollars yeah. a pound. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And this this reusability that that you know we're seeing a resurgence of this idea of the reusability that will bring that down and by a lot, but still it's it's still so expensive. And then of course that could bring into the conversation could segue into the whole space elevator, which would be a lot cheaper. Well, that's it a wouldn't. Whole other uh, course of a different go. Well, yeah, yeah. So hold on, let me just let me throw it down here for one second. Um, really? Yeah. So the 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 SpaceX Starship, its capability. If, if it actually works according to Musk and at the rates, you're looking at sub $100 per kilogram flights. Maybe is down around $35 per kilogram. Wow. Yeah. If they can, if they can get the, if they can get this functioning on a regular basis, it could be getting the prices down that low. And the best estimates for a space elevator were in the $75 per kilogram. So in fact, a two stage fully reusable rocket is probably more economical than a space elevator. And the the SpaceX Starship in its current form with the um oh and I forget the exact diameter is it a 9 meter diameter this is their first version. This is like essentially Starship is the smallest possible rocket that can fulfill a fully reusable two-stage mission. And but they but they get more efficient as they get bigger. And so Musk actually said that he's, he thinks that they'll have one that is four times bigger next. 
and then the prices, the economies of scale come down even further and it gets mm-hmm. even cheaper. So, so at this point, if, if this works, and of course, you know, we're still waiting for the SpaceX Starship to actually reenter the Earth's atmosphere in one piece and land safely on Earth. If it can, if it can do that, then, then I think the golden future has, has begun. But if they can actually pull that off, then I think that it pretty much invalidates the need for a space elevators at that point. But how do that, we know that's that fascinating? What, yeah. How do we know what the cost would be? You know, like it just seems counterintuitive that all you're really doing is cranking something, you know, up an elevator shaft to get up to the height. So what we're, you know, and you said it's $75 versus, you know, like whatever. Well, that's the amortized yeah. cost. Yeah. You, right? had to, you, you had to build a, a yeah. cable all the way from geosynchronous orbit. Down to twenty three thousand miles. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, you had to do that. And then the other problem is that essentially you can only send a couple of payloads up the the elevator at a time, and they have to be powered by something like sunlight. And so there's actually limitations on how much cargo you can carry. The things will have to do fairly take a very long time to get up the entire you know. Think about that. Days. Imagine spending like like weeks. Yeah. Going to orbit, like that's after a while, yeah. you're like, let's just get yeah. there. there. What the hell? Yeah. And so when you look at the Starship, the, the boosters are designed to work, uh, what did the, he say? Six times a day, the super heavy booster. And then the Starship will probably be able to fly four times a day. I forget the exact numbers. So the star, each individual Starship within a year, not even will, essentially be capable of launching more times than all rockets ever launched in the history of humanity. Like, mm-hmm. like the scale at which this technology will function, if it, if it works, if, in, if it works as envisioned, completely changes the way, uh, just the way space exploration happens, the way we get anything into space. And, and at the same time, you're seeing this whole other revolution that's coming caught on its heels, which is space-based resource harvesting and manufacturing. So there's one company that's actually working on say 3D printing solar panels in space. They just mm-hmm. spray uh like an inkjet printer. They can actually cover hundreds of meters of solar panel surface. So they 3D print the lattice that it's built onto and then they spray this liquid onto the panel and now they they're building as much power generation as as they need for as, as big as they want. People are building their, their, there's a company called Arconaut that is building a, or the, the company is called Made in Space and their spacecraft is called Arconaut. And it is going to, it looks like a, like a three armed spider that, that extrudes girders out of its, out of its, well, out of its spinneret. <laughs> and, and so it extrudes these girders and then extrudes nuts and bolts out of the same spinneret, a 3D printer, wow. and then attaches them all together. And so it can build things, structures in space of any size that have never had to undergo anything under the gravity of Earth. How do you spray something in space? I, I, I don't know. With a sprayer? <laughs> It's still still worth. That's how a rocket works, right? You're just spraying hot gas in the opposite yeah. direction of what I you want to go. Guess yep. So, but We've you're not targeting force, something guess. specific with it, are yeah. you? But that's interesting. Yeah. So, so I actually think you know, as we get to the next, as as the capability of these rockets pick up, 
the capability of space-based manufacturing and resource acquisition at the same time is going to go just as fast. And this might be a blip that 50 years from now, nobody will launch rockets because everything is, is built in space. That would certainly solve a lot of problems of getting stuff up there. I mean, yeah, if we have the raw material, yeah. you know, I, I know like the first thing that I remember reading about was using the moon's regolith to make fuel and oxygen. But, you know, the raw material to build different components and things, I mean, man, if we had like an asteroid parked somewhere where we could just mine it for raw material and build the stuff that we need right out there, yeah. Of course, that's that's brilliant. That would be, yeah. you know, one of the one of the holy grails of of creating habitats and everything in, on different planets. And what, one of the things that we're really finding is how much volatiles, how much water, ammonia, nitrogen, all of these these volatile chemicals that were thought to be completely blasted out of the asteroid field are actually present in these objects. Even though they're very close to the sun, they actually still seem to contain quite a lot of volatiles just protected under the under the surface. And we actually talked about this in in the latest episode of Astronomy Cast, but this idea that as Osiris Rex, this is the NASA mission, was approaching asteroid Bennu, it got blasted in the face by pebbles, by by gravel. And it turned out that that the volatile elements inside this asteroid, you know, the asteroid cracked open a little bit, volatile elements were released, it blasted out rock into space, and this struck uh, Osiris-Rex, and it actually went through this this cloud. And so now it really looks like a lot of these asteroids have a lot more of these really valuable elements and volatiles and things like that than anyone ever thought. And so there's some other great ideas for being able to try and harvest and mine this kind of thing. I wonder how long it'll be before we have a spaceship that's built in orbit and never, ever lands, right? Because if you're going to have a big ship flying around the solar system, you wouldn't mm. want it to be like blasting off from the Earth every all the time. Take a, right? Mm -hmm. The kind of massive ship you want to be on if you're going to like even to Mars uh, isn't necessarily the, the same one that you want to blast off from the surface of the Earth in, right? Yeah. Well, you look at James Webb. James Webb has been eternally delayed, has gone massively over budget. And a part of the reason is because it's such a gigantic telescope. It's going to be a 6.5 meter telescope that needs to fit within a much smaller fairing to fit within an Ariane 5 rocket. And so it's like origami, right? The thing has to fold out, has to deploy this tennis court sized sunshade and this, and so it has to be able to do the tests here on Earth. Thing has to be able to handle the rigors of, of a rocket launch, which is a very terrifying experience. Has to be able to fly to the L2 Lagrange point. Has to be able to unfurl itself in all these different ways. And then it has to function. And, and the, all those additional requirements, if you just fly out with your Arconaut to the Lagrange point and then you just start web spinning the structure of a telescope and then yeah. you spray with your uh with your sprayers the telescope surface suddenly this job becomes a lot more comp less complicated from a from what you have to build on earth standpoint and so that really seems like that's going to be the ne the next step for a lot there's a lot of really interesting very large telescope ideas which will be built completely in space they don't be they don't yeah. need to have ever been on earth Right. And there are also like we have rob robots that can build three dimensional frameworks from from component pieces, you know, just by repeating certain actions. 
Uh, they're kind of like space-based worker bees, you know. Drones. Um, How did we build the ISS? Many, many launches of rockets, mm-hmm. especially the space yeah. shuttle. And then yeah, humans. Right. And, so, mm-hmm. and then, it, but it was like built in place. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. it was it was constructed in place, but the components were built on Earth. Yeah, it was assembled yeah. in space. Yeah. And one yeah, one thing we're testing is the you know the blow up habitat that you can attach to uh you know to one of the one of the arms. Um, I haven't read about it recently. I know that there was testing going on, but it seems like a pretty cool idea as long as the the you know structurally it's sound. Yeah, there's one on the space station right now. So there's an inflatable module attached, a Bigelow module attached to the International Space Station. And its job is exactly that, to to test out how well inflatable modules work. And so far, they're happy with it. They haven't deflated it and thrown it into the earth. So so it's not um, uh, vulnerable to like micro, what are they called, micrometeoroids? No, if anything, they're actually better than mm. the tin can type ones because when you get a like all of the space station modules have some level of shielding inside of them but the these inflatable ones they're multiple layers of of different fabrics kevlars things like that and so they're able to handle uh, an impact very very easily because they don't they don't I mean, when you think about like an aluminum can and you jab it and you get sort of this jagged entry and the whole thing yeah. will kind of tear open like that but with these, they are their fabric. They're various layers of fabric so they layered can on top of each other. When they it's take like they the can hit, catch, they can catch yeah. the hit. But the other thing, as well, is, is important to understand that if you do punch a hole in the side of, say, the space station, it's not like it will explosively decompress. You could go over, notice the slight air leak coming out of the space station. You could put your hand over top of it and stop it. So it's it's not as catastrophic as people think. I saw it in a movie it's once. So pressurized. Though. Yeah, it's just that the the difference of pressure between the mm. inside the space station and the vacuum of space is actually not that bad. Oh, yeah, I think we're just so used to thinking about like airplanes and what would happen if kind of like your window got knocked out of an airplane. Everybody thinks they would get sucked yeah, out. Yeah, but it's not that bad. Yeah, I, I read a science fiction story once where they had a space station and uh, floating around the space oh station God. were we, balloons. This, to the same story. I was just about to say yeah. that. Excellent. So you have like a balloon filled with goo. And if there's a little micrometeorite or whatever causing a leak, the balloon over. will float over to it because it, it would just follow the currents to the leak. It'll you know it basically get sucked into it, pop, and then auto seal it. That's awesome. Yeah, I think yeah, that's right? awesome. Clever. An Asimov story. Yeah, I think it was Asimov. Guys, have you read any of the articles about how humans are not, you know, well built to handle outer space and that long space travel is going to be a massive problem? Oh, it's yeah. devastating. Well, yeah. It's devastating. They I don't understand why send people robots. <laughs> want to do it personally. Like, I get why Star brave Trek astronauts yeah. <laughs> want to, you know, it's there. do the good science. But no, that's just bananas to me. It's just, it's not. Well, there's two. I understand going and doing science. It's the same way that people. We're going to need a new planet someday. Well, the Jared. I I do not like that argument. I really do not like that argument. There's two camps. I mean, it really is like, I don't know. I don't want to just like make it super simplified, but it is kind of an emotional question that you ask because there are people that are really like boots on the ground, you know? I mean, I heard Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson argue this at a TAM conference probably a decade ago at this point. And they they had it out about should we send people or should we send robots and uh, you know Neil was definitely boots on the ground and and uh, 
And Bill was like, you know, let's send robots first. You know, yeah. Like, I mean, it's it's easy to say when we're talking about the moon, but it's like, look here on Earth. You know that there are, there are explorers and there are scientists who go deep into the ocean to do good science, but nobody's like, I want to just go live on the bottom mm-hmm. of the ocean. Well, an easier like, analogy is Antarctica. That. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. like Antarctica is there. is one of the most inhospitable places you can go to on planet Earth, and you the most require... hospitable place in the universe besides the rest of the Earth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, yeah. in the solar yeah. system. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so, and you don't see a lot of people wanting to go and move to Antarctica and try to like eke out a living amongst the penguins, and the reason is because it's terrible. Um, yeah. And yet, you still have. You can still breathe. The temperature rises to levels where you can wear a warm coat. And Mm -hmm. the ultraviolet radiation isn't punishing and nonstop. So I think that – Yeah, but Fraser, listen. And you can get to New Zealand pretty quickly. And there's a magnetosphere over your head. Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait. But don't get too psyched about that because, you know – some of the people in your group might find a, a, an alien spaceship frozen in the ice and they thaw out the alien. And next thing you know, like it's eating everybody. We've seen the movie Wait, on movie this. What movie is that? Yeah, well, that's a more It's not a, it's not a safe it's place just a to dog. Go. It's just a dog. <laughs> it really does to me, though, feel like a failure in a way of like realistic reality testing. Well, like it worries me a little bit from a psychological perspective that people are willing to invest so much time, effort, and energy and think that it's a more viable option to escape planet Earth and set up a new yeah. colony than just to fix the problems that we have at home and uh, continue to explore for scientific purposes. I think that's a straw man a little bit. I don't think anybody thinks respond- that. Well, I was just responding to what Evan said. Yeah, but okay. I, no, I think I think she's exactly right. Aloud. I think she's exactly right that there are people who feel that way. And I feel that it's sort of my job to to drag them uh, to encourage them to join me on an exploration of just how awful the rest of the solar system is. Scientifically <laughs> fascinating, but but a really terrible place to try and, and live. Uh, the moon yeah. is terrible. Mars is terrible. Venus is super terrible. They, they all have their, their brief highlights. And I think I can imagine this future. And, and I know a lot of the people in the Mars society, you know, I'm going to get the emails, send them to the skeptics <laughs> yeah. guide. Yeah, um, never get those, right? But, but that I don't see a future human presence on, on any world except for Earth. To be anything beyond what we kind of have at Antarctica, we're going to have a research station on the moon to do moon things. We're going to have a research station on Mars to do Mars things. But but living and yeah. working and raising your kids and growing crops and all that, like that's that's a, it's the worst place. And and it's it really shows how wonderful the Earth is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it does. And, yeah. and it bugs me that that's what so much SCICOM coverage is when it comes to space exploration. It's like, ooh, how do you have sex in space? What if you need to like have progeny in space? Yeah. What's going to happen in, in an effort to maintain a life there 365 days a year? And it's like, that's right. not viable. That, that, that's just like, it's romantic. It's sci-fi. What, yeah. what the thing, the bottom line is that we will eventually, we will live on the moon, we will live on Mars and other areas in the solar system. But it's going to take so many decades before Yes. Before well, that's yeah. really a viable also, option. I, the technology. Let me finish. Let me finish this thought. Let me finish this thought. It's going to take okay. so many. The technology will have to be at such a level. The robots will prepare it for us. We will go there, and it'll be 
relatively nice, so much better than the Antarctic is right now. But that's going to take – it could take a century or more. Hundreds of years. Yeah. Many – a really well, long time. But, the, pro- but the thing is – the thing is it's not going to happen in the near future You know, for two, two main reasons. First off, microgravity totally screws your body over. And the cosmic radiation. rays and solar radiation will fry you and give you cancer. And we do, just don't have the money or the technology right now to shield people from that. So that's not even going to happen in the short term for those two reasons. There's no way we're going to Mars or anywhere else long term for those two reasons. And no one's got but Bible Bob, plans. You're still saying it as if it's de- it's a definite that it's going to happen. Sure. And I disagree with that fundamentally. Come on. But when, you, when I'm projecting out, uh, you know, 100, 150 years, I mean. It's, that is not it's, that long. It is not. <laughs> I really, really think that you're being so a massive techno. The technology right gets to a point where we can overcome all of those downsides, then there are <laughs> benefits to living in space. There's a lot of room. But I actually I'm a huge fan of Jeff Bezos's strategy on on this, which is that Earth is is the best place in the universe for life and we are messing mm-hmm. it up while we live here. We evolved to adapt mm-hmm. to this place. And yet we are and- polluting it every which way we can. And so it makes a ton of sense. If we want to continue to have a, a fairly modern way of life, it makes a ton of sense for us to push the pollution and manufacturing off of this planet out into space, which is just probably rocks, rocks and sunlight, mm. and and mm. focus on Earth as being a really, really habitable place. And that's something that we are in right now. We're not at a stage where we can both live in this world, but also take care of it and be able to yeah. live comfortably. And so it makes a ton of sense for us to push that manufacturing into space, push that power generating into space. And then be stewards of, of this environment. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, KiwiCo. Guys, KiwiCo creates hands-on projects for kids of all ages, making learning about science fun. Now, listen, this holiday season, what are you going to give all these kids that you know, all the kids that are in your life? You must know someone that might want to be an explorer or an engineer or an artist or a scientist. These hands-on projects are fantastic gifts. Jay, I was looking at this particular doodle crate project titled Handmade Soap. In it, the kids will learn how to create colorful handmade soaps. And once they have the basic steps down, they're able to experiment with the shapes, angles, contrasts, and various colors. It sounds like a lot of fun to work with the kids on this one. Each box comes with all the supplies needed for that month's project, plus detailed kid-friendly instructions. KiwiCo projects are available via flexible monthly subscriptions or for individual purchase. Yeah, guys, so pick up a gift for a kid of all ages. There's something for everyone on your list. You go to kiwico.com slash skeptics, and you get to get your first month for free. That's kiwico, K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Uh, Fraser, so I have a question for you. What astronomy pseudoscience drives you crazy the most? All of them? Yeah, that's a good answer. (laughs) I mean, the one that's obviously been haunting me right from the beginning is this idea of Planet X Nibiru. Nibiru. I mean, yeah, like when I started my job 20 years ago, people were convinced that there was a mysterious planet called Nibiru that was flying into the inner solar system. It was going to cause a pole flip of planet Earth and... 
and that there was a vast conspiracy to cover it up. And here we are 20 years later and people are still bringing this up. And so I still have to, de- to debunk it. Although I, now I just get to point at the video that I made. I don't know, mm-hmm. eight years ago, and go, just watch <laughs> that. And the things I said in that video are still relevant. I was just younger then. Yeah, that's what I like. I like about writing blog posts. I could just point people to. I, yeah. Oh, I already debunked that. Here you go. Yeah. That's <laughs> now how I choose how to do many of my videos is just what's the question I keep getting a lot of. Yeah. I just did a three part in-depth video on the Lagrange points and mm-hmm. just covered every single version of the Lagrange points so that. Now I can just refer to them. Yeah, that's a great idea. Mm. Yeah, Nibiru is definitely one because it's just it's just made up. It's just a made up conspiracy, and there's so many reasons to think that it's nonsense. You know, it just doesn't really make any sense. Like, yeah, like there would be a huge planet out there, and we wouldn't know about it. But the other ones that is always just, you know, it's just annoying because it's just ignorant. Like I wonder, like yeah, you don't really care anything about astronomy, do you? Is uh, people who think like, oh, the supermoon, right? The supermoon. Mm-hmm. It's going to be this amazing thing or that like we're going to be able to see Mars with the naked eye. Oh, you know, not like not just as a point of light, but as a like the Mars is going to look like the moon at, on the close approach of Mars. <laughs> like, yeah. I like supermoon. See, I don't mind talking about the supermoon because it gives me a chance to talk about syzygy and the the orbit that the moon takes and how it's a it's a perigee syzygy is the supermoon. Yeah, I, I got that right. So at the, and so when you think about the moon, right, it has this elliptical orbit around the, the earth. So sometimes it's close and sometimes it's far, but then it also has the, the phases as it moves from a new moon to a, a full moon. And when those two line up, when you get that perigee syzygy, then you get a supermoon and where the moon is both the closest in its orbit, but also a full moon. And I kind of like it. It is, you know, you probably wouldn't notice, but when people take pictures, the moon is, is noticeably larger and a little bit brighter in those pictures. And so it's, it's a thing that a person can observe if they were observant of the sky. But f- for most people, most of the time, they have no idea the amount of brightness that you actually experience from the supermoon. Yeah, but mm-hmm. like there's all the additional ones too. There's like the blood moon and the super blue blood moon and the blue, blue and everybody, you're right, Steve, they think like, they're going to all get their periods or we're all going to start howling or like something yeah. weird is going to happen to our bodies time, yeah. because of that. The one that, again, that is the most annoying is the people who think that we'll be able to see Mars will look like the moon, you know, because the Mars is close. Yeah, As that's a approach. funny one. Do you know the origin of that? No, I don't. Yeah. I so what happened one. was, and I, and I don't remember the specifics, and I'm sure at this point it's going to be lost to the, to the internet's timelessness, but there was a, um, an observatory or like a, a planetarium that sent out an email that said that under a small power telescope, uh, Mars will look as big as the moon looks to the naked eye. And so with an 80 power, if you look through a telescope, an 80 power telescope, the size of the moon when it was at that closest point back in, I think it was 2003, which was like the closest Mars that we had in, in tens of thousands of years. If you looked at it in an 80 power telescope, it was roughly the same size as what the moon, the moon looks like with your own eyeballs. And so this, this got somebody cut off the with an 80 power telescope. <laughs> yeah. A little detail. That's kind of, <laughs> yeah. And so then there. said Mars will look as big, but, but the rest of the email is exactly correct that this was the closest Mars was going to be in 
in it was this exact date in August, and I forget the exact date, like August eighteenth, two thousand and three, was this close Mars approach, and then. And it, like I said, from this well-meaning planetarium, and it went out as an email, and then somebody hacked out that one line, and then it just kept circulating. And so Mars is actually close and bright in the sky every two years, and it's never looks anything more than a just a bright star. Yeah. But this email makes the rounds on the anniversary of that 2003 close approach of Mars. <laughs> and so we get it every, even even though Mars is is sometimes Mars is on the other side of the sun when that that anniversary happens because when Mars makes its closest approach is a different time yeah. it's roughly every 2 years and it slowly is shifting around. So it's a, it's a funny thing that that a well-meaning f- actually fairly scientifically accurate piece of information was slightly modified and then it just won't die. Just took on a life of its own. Yeah. But all this doesn't matter from our flat earth, does it, Fraser? Well, my job has gotten a lot easier now that that Google with YouTube has put less emphasis on the pseudoscience videos on the platform. So it actually has made a big difference. I get a lot less death threats on my YouTube channel. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, so because. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> mm-hmm. You were getting death threats from flat from flat earthers. Well, yeah. So I mean, you know the death threats that we all get as being science communicators because you're part everybody, of the conspiracy. Everybody loves me. Yeah, yeah. But which are which are worse for you, Fraser? Is it the flat earthers or the moonlander people? I ignore them equally. Okay, but <laughs> yeah. like, are any more violent than than others? Uh, oh, the the more flat earth. I would say the flat earthers are more angry. Hmm than the the moon hoaxers but it's a tough call and the ufo conspiracy people as well right like because they all feel that there is this grand conspiracy that is keeping the truth secret and as one of the shills i am mortally endangering the souls of humanity by continuing this scam you're a threat to humanity i'm a threat to humanity and so they are they feel like it's perfectly fine to speak to me in in a kind of language that uh you know has a certain amount of threat to it and that's just like that just goes along with the job i mean righteous yeah 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 yeah. i mean it's 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 tough though i mean what we get as i think as male science communicators is a fraction of what Mm. i know a lot of the females get like it's terrible out there yeah actually most of my those hostile emails are um about alternative medicine though to me personally right of course yeah same thing right yeah because that's your specialty yeah yeah so and they're they're so boilerplate right do you get that too they're so boilerplate like these people think that they're being so original, like they're thinking for themselves, and they're regurgitating <laughs> these lines that somebody else obviously wrote and thought of. You know what I mean? They're, it's, it's, I find it so incredibly ironic. They pasted your name on a template and sent it to you. That was yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like there isn't an original thought in the entire email. It is all propaganda that somebody else thought of. And don't they always write them as if you've never heard their arguments? Well, yeah, before? I know. Yeah. <laughs> Although now I'm starting to wonder how much of these are actually like Russian troll farms yeah, designed yeah. to increase uh, a distrust in science. Oh, gosh. Well, I've been getting the same ones for 20 years, so it's probably not the Russians. <laughs> right. But I, like, I think I've gotten pretty zen about the whole process at this point. Like, I, I don't, like, I don't really engage. 
I don't really talk to them. I'm not really interested in having that conversation. So for me, like if you want to come and you want to talk about space and you want to talk about astronomy, and if you want to have some disagreements about this stuff, then then that's fine. Let's let's have these conversations. But but if you're not here to talk about space, you just have some agenda that you're trying to push, this isn't for you. Right. There's the door. I advise you to take it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, the the thing I find interesting is that there are certain kinds of people that are listening to the content. Mm-hmm. You know, like they, they're listening. They're listening. It seems like they're listening to deliberately get angry, so they can deliberately <laughs> yes. go tell the the content creators, you know, to go f themselves. You know, mm-hmm. like, well, people have said know, that to us. They said, "I listen to you guys because I wanted to hear, you know, the bad arguments of the other side." You know, sometimes they say that after they've come around, but then I realized that you actually, you know, had something intelligent to say. Yeah. It's a good thing, right? Like it's, yeah. we talk about this as skeptics. Like it's a good thing to listen to other opinions, other arguments, blah, blah, blah. But it's just sad when other is the scientifically backed one. You know what I mean? When that's like, this isn't like a political thing, like listening to the other party's take on healthcare. This is like, oh, I'm just going to listen to the scientific opinion as opposed to the pseudoscientific opinion. Yeah, my, I mean, my approach with all of this is to is to try to give everybody a chance to be nice. Mm-hmm. And so someone will say something and I will respond in what is like, like, hey, buddy, here's your chance to not be an asshole. Yeah. And, and then if they double down, then the conversation's over and I'm not interested. But yeah, if, that, that's the exact approach that I take. Yeah. And then if they do act, you know, and, and often they're, they're taken off guard by me being a polite Canadian and then <laughs> – I will, and then often they will turn into, you know, longtime fans of, of what we do. And I find it's, it's almost 50 50. Like someone will say something super snarky and either they were just trolling and then disaster averted or they were, they just had, no one had ever like had a conversation with them yet about this kind of stuff. And so they've mm-hmm. got someone who, who will, will have a fairly, uh, civil conversation with them. But, it, it, you know, that I would say that's about half the time. And then sometimes they can come around and they'll stick around and years later, they're a really great member of the community. But others, they just, they're just there for the fight and they're not going to yeah. get a fight out of me. I'm, yeah. You know, they get one say, response and then that's it. I would say for me, it's a, a lot less than half, but there have been a few really interesting kind of like anecdotal experiences that I've had where somebody was like being you know, really sexist, horrible troll. And then I like talk to them like a person and they realize that I am a person and not just like some sort of weird figure. And they apologize. Like they were like, oh my gosh, I didn't think you would actually read that. I don't know what I thought. I was having a really bad day. Mm -hmm. I really feel terrible that like the things that I said made you feel bad, you know? And then I was like, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm human too. Like, just like you. And that conversation did lead to sort of like more fandom or more of like a, a an appropriate, I think, online relationship with, you know, a consumer of my content. But I actually find that that's not that common. And so unfortunately, it's really hard to make the decision about what you want to waste your energy on. But I think yeah. it's it's tough for you guys because you are going out and and – finding pseudoscience, finding places that require more skepticism and actively engaging in it. So mm-hmm. so you are you are kicking the hornet's nests, yeah. all of them simultaneously. And for me, like there's definitely some channels out there on on YouTube where uh they are looking at the pseudoscience aspects of of YouTube and and questioning their beliefs. 
that's not interesting to me. So I'm, I'm never going to pick a fight with a flat earth channel or a UFO channel or any of that. I'm going to, I'm going to report on interesting and fascinating and wondrous stuff in the universe. And if somebody wants to make a comment, then I will respond as politely and, and disarmingly as I can, but I'm definitely not, I'm not going into battle, I think in the way that, that you are. And yeah. so it's got to be a tougher one for, for what you do because by just the nature of the show, you've got to, you've got to call some of this stuff to question. Yeah, people do. I think they feel more called out by virtue of like being kind of a more skeptical activist. And of course, then there's the additional layer that you already mentioned, which is that like a lot of what I deal with is just entrenched in basic misogyny. Like it just goes so much far be- farther beyond, yeah. you know, actually advocating for pseudoscientific things or being anti-establishment or conspiratorial. There's also a facet. And I do... I, I actually am interested, and I don't know if there is any real evidence on this or data on this, if, if there is any sort of correlation at all or what the correlation might be between conspiratorial thinking and sort of engagement in that kind of trolling behavior on the internet and sexism, misogyny, racism, those kinds of things. I wonder if there is really any crossover or if it's just that when when all those things align, when syzygy occurs, right, <laughs> then all hell hell breaks loose. Well, one of the things that I that I always wanted to do and I don't kind of have the guts to to organize it, which is I would love to interview people that I disagree with and just have these conversations just like why do you believe what you believe and what is the basis of it what is the foundation and and sort of chase it all back to the to the source and just try to understand like not not judge their position but just understand it and then obviously by me asking questions and going down that journey i think i'll get a better sense of what the patterns are cuz a lot of it i think we don't see the underlying thought patterns yet no and yeah. and i and i think that you know for a lot of us we're in a very reactionary position kind of beleaguered exhausted just trying to do our jobs and then someone comes in and is calling you a reptilian shill <laughs> cuck shill and you just kind of want to say like i don't really have time for this but i would i would actually love to have some quest some just some interviews and just kind of like why do you believe what you believe like what let me understand it and then you make it may not be a very fruitful conversation, but I think it would be it would be interesting. Well, I think it'll humanize them first, um, which I think is important because we all have a tendency to dehumanize other. We all have a tendency to to be a little bit um, um, syzygy. <laughs> syzygy. <laughs> syzygy. Tribal. Um, tribal. Thank you. Um, which is like a, a, a unfortunately kind of an evolutionary thing that that human beings struggle with all the time. Beyond that, one of the things we try to do here on this show is we try to cover anytime there is sort of meta research about why people believe what they believe. Mm-hmm. So anytime there's a new poll that gives us some insight or there's some kind of psychological research that shows, you know, how somebody who's conspiratorial about X um, comes to those conclusions or what other things they believe, because I do think it's important to, to understand that. Yeah, we're, we, we sometimes will talk, engage with these people. We're trying to understand it phenomenologically mm-hmm. as well as like what makes them tick, as well as just understand the logic. Like, why do we believe what we believe? Because, you know, we don't want to take it for granted. Can we really defend it, you know, against a motivated attack or opposition? Yeah, I mean, this is so, it's so easy 
for any kind of, I guess, communication in general. But definitely, you know, in science communication, I think it's very easy to get a little like know-it-all-y and, you know, preachy. Yeah, preachy and even, you know, condescending to alternative views and everything. Because what's your alternative view to science? (laughs) There isn't one. You know, like if you're a true... If you're a true science enthusiast and you believe in the scientific process, and then when someone comes at you with something that defies that, you know, we're human. Your hackles go up. You get you get frustrated. You get angry. You know, read emails. You're like, oh, my God. You know, there's like so many different, you know, emotional responses we, we all have to these things. And, you know, Fraser's getting death threats for crying out loud. You know, people are so into what they believe and what they want to be true. That they're willing to, you know, because I, I think 99% of all death threats are complete BS. Yeah, it takes sure, a, It's a lot of work to go kill someone. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> yeah. it, it is, you know, but but it's easy to type it on the internet, but you're you're doing it because you're pissed because you're trying to get the person on the other yeah. end of that weird thing uh, to, to move in their seat. And I get that. I would yeah. never do it. But I mean, I, I try to, I try to take my... 20 plus years of science communication, you know, I try to wear it like armor and also wear it like, you know, something that massages the anger out of me. You know, I'm like, oh my God, mm-hmm. you know, I just want them to understand. And, you know, we do the show to help people, you know, you know, not just to help people, but one of the motivations was to give people a resource um, and to help bring a bright spot to a very dark world, you know, this, this lack of information that's out there. But it's always going to bother us. We're human. It's always going to be, you know, like, you can't pretend that it has no emotional effect on you. Of course it does. It's always frustrating to read a frustrating email. Yeah. Um, but what we choose to do with those things, Kara, is what? We we don't do anything. We we write back. We, we show an extraordinary level of patience. Yeah, and it depends. You know, it's, 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 you're right, Jay, like it's, it's person to person and it's experience to experience because I think that sometimes you'll have somebody who writes and they are making valid philosophical points about epistemology. And that's something that is an important conversation for us to have, right? Like somebody might be saying, this is my view on science from an epistemological perspective. And I've done a lot of real work on this and this is where I stand. And that's actually a valid conversation as opposed to somebody who might have mental illness, you know, who might have paranoia or be be struggling with other things. And it's like, we can't respond the same way to everybody all the mm-hmm. time because it's unfair. And it's actually really, I think, crass for us to do that. Definitely my approach to psychom has changed immensely since I've thrown myself fully into my psychology studies. They've completely changed my understanding of like constructivism, my understanding of like staunch logical positivism i've I've got a much more philosophical kind of lens when i look at things and i think it's making me better at my job and and better at being human to other people whereas maybe back when i was much more firebrand much more sure of myself and kind of unwilling to accept that anybody else's opinion if it wasn't just like mine was had any validity to it i mean that's also you can't be a good science communicator when you operate that way yeah, I, my, my hope is that that is a lesson that is being learned really by the whole skeptic community is mm-hmm. just to take a lighter touch, but to be firm in, in what you believe, but to not go after the cheap shots. Well, that's true. And, you know, there's a massively bigger fish to fry. I mean, we have, you know, we have people not getting vaccinated. We have people not yeah. believing in global warming. And I would even say, you know, the flat earth thing as the phenomenon of more and more people believing in it unfolds in front of us, you know, I would rather talk about that than Bigfoot right now because yeah. people are really 
we need to get good information out there to kind of squelch that down as much as much as we can. And also we're lucky. The Bigfoot believers are the fringe now. Like we know that. And it doesn't mean that it's not still there and it doesn't mean we don't still have work to do, but it's made it its way to the fringe. You still see a couple of mainstream television shows, but there is a fringe vibe to them and component to them. That's true, but at the same time, pseudoscience has worked its way into the mainstream of political discourse. Absolutely. In a way that wasn't real. So it's different topics, like different constructs. But pseudo-everything has worked its way. Oh, sure. I mean, they relaunched (laughs) In Search Of with uh, Zachary Quinto, you know, and that's in its second season now, and it's as bad as the first one ever was. These things never go away. Bad as it ever was, but now on t- on top of that, there's yeah, there's like hardcore pseudoscience that we have to deal with in science yeah. denial and war on expertise and Ugh, yeah, yeah, pseudo philosophies like you know just challenges to the underpinnings of science stuff like we're refighting philosophical wars that we mm-hmm. thought we won two hundred years ago. Yeah, but and and my version of that is I get eighteen year olds or sixteen year olds who are sure they're going to die because Nibiru is going to. Mm-hmm. And they live in terror, mm-hmm. and you just and you're just like, why? Oh, Fraser, I, I got a I got a question for you because you you just reminded me of something, and I'm I've been wanting to ask someone with your skill set. So when Phil Play came out with Death from Death Death from Above, Death from the, or, the Skies, Death from yes. the Skies, oh god, it was you know I've read the book when it came out, so it's quite a while, but man, that book freaked the, me the hell out. <laughs> Is there anything in that book that scares you? No. Like, like, you're, like every once in a while, Bob will be like, we could just get a gamma ray burst and zap the whole freaking solar system. You know? Yeah. Like the whole thing the will one get vaporized. That should scare you the most oh, is yeah. the character, vacuum. A character level event is yeah. one. Is, no, the one that should scare you the most is the, is the vacuum decay of the universe. Yeah. Right. The, well, that's the one yeah, where at some point, nasty. somewhere in some corner of the universe, the universe drops into its final best energy state and a bubble expands at the speed of light that essentially converts this universe into the new universe and poorly and, and everything is gone. But why is that yeah. scary? That's like the best way to die. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, speed of <laughs> like, light. You don't even know what's happening. Yeah. Everything like is hit by that. a train. No, that's there's the entire no known universe. There's the no entire known universe yeah. heading. Oblivion is but, heading towards us at the speed of light. But the thing is, but the thing is, a Carrington level event from the sun to me is more is scarier because sure, vacuum decay that could happen. Maybe it's like a week yep. away. But uh, the chances of that happening seem pretty remote. Whereas a Carrington level event where we've got a uh, you know a coronal mass ejection from the sun that fries all modern technology technology that's something that it's going to happen i mean that we had it that will hit us in 2013 a a few years ago we had we had a near miss so that if if that that could happen and the chances are actually very good that it's going to happen within the next 20 years and we got to prepare for that yeah we're going to take a hit yeah and it's almost worse like something that doesn't kill you but just makes your life horrible yeah, yeah. 1700s, dies, bam, it's death. the 1700s yeah. overnight. You wake up and yeah. you're in the 1700s. It's like, oh boy. Yeah. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in getting your opinion on this, Fraser, because I wrote about that recently on my blog. And there was serious discussion in the comments where people were claiming, ah, it's going to be nothing if we got hit. It actually, the, the concerns are completely overblown mm-hmm. that all of the, um, you know, our infrastructure is already fine because the it's not trans- <laughs> the transformers are are designed to go offline for a surge and all that. 
So it's, great. I was very different than what I had previously read. So I looked into it further. Okay. And what, and what I basically <laughs> discovered is that we have no idea what's going to happen. Right. Yes. That was the answer I was going to give. <laughs> the, oh, I mean, we <laughs> saw – I mean, in many cases, the electrical grid is run at capacity already. And the, the big problem with this, with these solar storms when they hit, is that they jam electrons through the wires and they break things. And then things, yeah. and we don't know where they'll break and we don't know how badly they'll, they'll break. And when they do break, then you need to replace that part. You need to yeah. swap out your router. You need to fix that, that transformer. And we saw, we actually had that in, in Canada, in Quebec back in 1989. Yeah. Yep. We had a, a pretty bad power outage that was caused by a solar storm. And it was that big chunk of Quebec, which is no picnic in the wintertime, <laughs> had no power. And oh, a gosh. lot of people had a rough time of it. Was that 1989? And, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And so then, so what's the solution, right? The solution is that you disaggregate the power system because you're like, if the entire grid is one big circuit and it breaks in any one spot, then the whole thing goes down. But if everybody's got their solar panels on their roof and everybody's got their power wall and everybody's got their electric car, then maybe my roof goes, but yours is fine. And, and so you don't get that, these cascading failures. So that's the solution. The solution is, Everybody has their own, you know, much smaller grids where yeah. power is shared as yeah. opposed to these great I'm big gonna have a thorium infrastructure. Yeah, you'll have your own thorium reactor. Isn't it funny how civilization really does evolve in these weird like waves where we go from basically being off the grid to having these massive municipal kind of shared social grids and then now we want to be back to being off the grid again. Yes. Well we don't want to be off the grid, but we want to have our own grid. You want to have microgrids. That's yeah. what we often mean now when we say off the grid, right? Yeah. Is that it's like our own ver- – we don't want to be like no electricity, but we want to be able to provide our own power. I think Texas I want, has I want a fusion story. reactor buried 50 feet under my house that will supply electricity to my house for a century. Yeah, it's like my my thorium, my backyard yeah. thorium reactors. Then I'll be happy. I mean, it is kind of interesting to see, like when you see what's happening with Starlink. I mean, Musk, Link last week, or uh, Gwen Shotwell said that they should be operational by mid 2020. So you should be able to buy your Starlink service by mid 2020, and that's high speed internet anywhere on anywhere in the U.S. and Canada for now. But eventually, within a couple of years. Anywhere on planet Earth, on your boat, on your car, in your cabin, wherever you want to go. And then you've got solar panels for your electricity. Like it's a prepper's dream. Yeah. What do you what do you think about the thirty thousand satellites? <laughs> All right. Um <laughs> okay, so, yeah. So so here so like I think that we have to agree that letting helping people access the internet is important. And that that it's at at this point we're at a point now where not having access to the internet is is going to stop people from being able to essentially join the modern society. Yeah. So they're going to want to do it. And so then the question is, how are they going to want to do it? Right now, there are 5 million cell towers around the world. There are underwater cables, submarine cables that are ground through sensitive marine environments. And then there are fiber optic cables that are dug through deserts and forests and cities and all kinds of places. So, so the spread of internet to every corner of this earth already is a massive undertaking and causes just an enormous impact on the environment. Uh, 
the in theory you get yourself 30,000 or 42,000 satellites is the is the final number um they have almost no impact on the terrestrial environment they do cause make the night sky worse but what do they 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 then provide internet to the other 5 billion people who currently don't have internet and so like i'm an astrophotographer I depend on taking pictures of the night sky that don't have a million satellite trails running through them. It is going to be a huge pain. And that's just for me to make pretty pictures of space. The scientists who are going to be doing this are going to have an even harder time. When you think about things like the large synoptic survey telescope that's taking pictures of the night sky, they're going to have multiple satellites in every picture that they take. So it's they're going to have to do processing. It's going to be a lot of sky pollution. Yeah, but, but then the question they are, is, right? oh my gosh. Like yeah. they're all mapped. It's not like they can't just remove them from like out there. Well, I mean, they're, where they are is everywhere. So no matter where you look, you're going to see a ton of them flying through your field of view. Yeah, and but what I'm saying is, it's sure they'll block things and their light will will obstruct things, but it's not like they can't. They're aware of their positions the same way any researcher who's studying something where something's in the way. Yeah, so it makes your job measurably worse. So, so yeah. in other words, like when I take pictures and an airplane passes through, I have to throw at that frame. And mm-hmm. so if I took 20 frames, one of them is useless, and I only took 19 frames, and so I only get 19 frames of data. So, so from an astronomer point of view, it's going to be bad. No question. But I look at, and we're not going to be able to really see them, especially the ones on the higher orbit. Like, you can't see the Starlinks right now. You can see them when they first launched, but but once they settled into their final orbit, most people, most of the time, can't see them at all. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Like, how much more polluting, not for astronomers, but for regular people, are they than, like, light pollution? So not at all. For, so for the vast majority of humanity, they're not going to be able to see them all. If you're in dark skies and they're, and some of them are close to the horizon, they might be bright, but even that still is, is a question. So, so I think that, that we have to assume my perspective on this is that we have to assume that the rest of humanity wants internet. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, how are they going to get their internet? And the, the environmental impact of getting that next three and a half billion people onto the internet is going to be dramatically more than the five million cell towers that have already been put in all the undersea cables that are already run. It's going to be a lot worse. It's going to be a, a order of magnitude worse because you need to stretch your internet out to the four corners of the planet. So a satellite system like this makes a ton of sense. And the price we pay is, Maybe a worse night sky for the people who live in really nice dark skies. They're going to see satellites. But if you've ever been in dark skies, you see satellites all the time already. So it's going to be that but worse. And for astronomers, it's going to suck, like really suck. And hopefully more space telescopes will come online. But the ground-based observatories are going to be made worse. And then the question is – is that a price that humanity should be willing to pay? Are we willing to pay for for worse – astronomical science in exchange for the rest of humanity getting access to the internet. Now, if, and, and I actually, if you go back, I've got a tweet to and from Elon Musk where he promises, I said, you know, essentially that, that if it brings, if he's able to let the other half of humanity affordably access the internet, then it's a price I'm willing to pay. And if it's just Mm -hmm. used to help trading, you know, rich banks trade faster then it's not a price I'm willing to pay. I want to have my astrophotos not have 
satellite trails run through them. So it really just depends. If this changes humanity and allows more people to access the internet, I think that it's in the end, it's worth doing. And if not, then Elon Musk can stick his satellites where the sun don't shine. It's up to him. Hey, guys, you know what time it is? Yep. It's time time for science or fiction. Oh, hey. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. I have a theme this week. What do you think the theme is? Space. Um, Oceanography. Canadian science. Uh, Biology. Come on, it's space, right? No, you're all incorrect. No, it's not space or astronomy or anything to do with any of your areas of expertise, Fraser. Except perhaps this. I thought I'd level the playing field for everybody. The theme is podcasting. Okay. Nice. Okay. Since you've hmm. all done that. So bad. <laughs> a few statistics about podcasting. One of them is incorrect. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. This will be quick. All right. Item number one. There are currently 700,000 active podcasts. Item number two. of Americans are monthly podcast listeners. It's monthly or greater. And item number three, 54% of U.S. podcast consumers are female, while 46% are male. Fraser, you, as our guest, you get the honor of going first. All right. So the, the distribution of genders, that seems about right to me. Everybody has a phone. Everybody likes to listen to podcasts. Um, the second one that 32% of Americans are monthly pod, that seems right. I mean, I think a lot of people are, are still getting into it. It's, it's growing, but it's still not entirely there. So 32% seems like it's taking off, but it's not 100% yet, like television or whatever. So no, I'm going to say that first one, and only because I think that number is low. You say 700,000. That feels like a fraction of what it really is. Everybody makes a podcast. Some people have multiple <laughs> podcasts. That's what I hear. All right, so you think that that one's the fiction? I think number one is the fake. <laughs> okay, Evan? Well, I'm on two podcasts uh, that are active, so count, count two right there. I'm uh, leaning towards Fraser being correct on this. I think we're in order of magnitude off here. We're maybe in the 7 million mark for active podcasts rather than 700,000. So I will go with Fraser. Oof. Okay, Bob? Two and three seem seem pretty good. 32%. One in three are monthly podcast listeners. I think that might be – that sounds a little high. Um, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of people, especially, you know, 60 and above that don't, probably don't even know what podcasts are. Uh, that seems a little high, but not not egregiously so. And the the third one, uh, the race, the gender ratio seems right, but I mean, I guess I could be surprised. Maybe that maybe it's a little higher, more you know, even more female than male. Uh, but yeah, but the first one, the seven hundred thousand active, I think it's higher as well. I'll say that's fiction. Okay, Kara, I'm breaking from you guys hardcore on this. I think absolutely mm. the last one, fifty four percent of consumers are female, is wrong. And I've been doing my podcast for like six years, over six years. I've been selling podcast ads and podcasts skew male. I remember once, and I have a very high listenership of men. Really? And I, yeah, and it bugs me because I have um, a gender. I actually have more women guests than male guests, and it's a woman-run podcast. And I still struggle 
with having like 75% of my listeners are male. I Part of that is because my podcast is a science podcast, but I always was under the impression that part of that was because fundamentally podcasts skew male. And so a female skewing podcast actually often still is not hitting the 50% mark. So I think that um, that's the one that I'm going to say is the fiction. My my YouTube audience, my YouTube audience is 91.7% male and 8.3% female. Yikes. Yeah. Yay, science. Yeah. Well. All right, Jay. Jay, it's all up to you. Steve, of course you picked me last because you know if there's anything that I can spew uh, statistics about, it says because that's all it's I – Thanksgiving, Apollo, and podcasting. Yes. Well, no, I mean I, I do – I'm doing marketing. I'm doing marketing. For, yeah, I'm good, definitely with yes. the teeth. Um, you know, and hair product. All, all the marketing <laughs> statistics that I use – and yeah, South so American ready, frogs. Let me, Steve, I mean, I can actually speak very intelligently about all this. You want me to go? go do it. it. Okay. All Your right. Last. The first one about 700,000 active podcasts. The key word is active. There are definitely oh. millions <laughs> upon millions of, of podcasts that have existed, but the active number is actually a lot smaller than you would think because people, there's a high abandon rate. Uh, people people don't podcast for like they'll go six months and then they'll quit and that's why whenever I give people advice I was just actually giving someone advice two days ago about how to start a podcast and I said you have to stick with it from one to two years in order to know if you're gonna if you're gonna actually go anywhere you can't do like the it's the flash in the pan thing it just isn't a likely thing to have happen so bottom line is absolutely I would even dare say the number could even be lower than that um, on the second one there thirty um, percent. 32% of, of Americans are uh, podcast listeners. Um, yeah, I mean, I would, I, my gut is telling me that that number is higher, but I could see that you could have found that statistic. Um, my gut is going to say something maybe more in a high 30s, uh, well, maybe Steve, low 40s. You're um, saying at least once per month by monthly? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then um, the last one is extraordinarily wrong. This one... <laughs> The, the the male podcasting audience is much larger than the female podcasting audience. I mean, and it's, the, the statistics here get a little crazy because we could start talking about things like the over-habitual listeners or people that are listening to seven or more podcasts a week and then how much that even more skews towards men. But there's mm-hmm. definitely sub-pockets to this data. But yeah, in general, there's m- more men listening to podcasts than women. Hands down, that one is absolutely the fiction. Yay, Jay. I hope you're right. All right, so you guys all agree on the middle one. 32% of Americans are monthly podcast listeners. You think that figure is about right? And that one is science. No. Uh, Yep, 32%. And 22% 22 are weekly. 22% weekly. 70% 70 are familiar with podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) Finally. Which means that 30% aren't familiar with podcasting, which is amazing. So, Uh, Steve, as funny as this might sound, my last read on that was about 40%, so I'm not sure if your number is correct. Really? Because 40% monthly? That may have been annually. These are 2019 statistics. I don't know what to say about that. I mean, the statistics I'm using are literally real-time. You know what I mean? Like, so this is. Oh, I'm using a uh, a infographic. It's a podcasting statistics 2019. It's the latest ones I could find. Okay, but, I mean, I would I would say just in general, though. I mean, okay, that's fine, and you can. There's lots of ways to measure the numbers, and I don't. We don't even need to get into that. But 
But yeah, real time numbers may be higher, but this, but you know, this may be six months old. I don't know, but it's 2019. It's it's close enough. Close enough. Let's move on. All right, (laughs) let's go back to number one. There are currently 700,000 active podcasts. Some of you think there are more than that. Some of you think there might be fewer than that. Is active the key word? As Jay suggests. Yes. (laughs) Tara and Jay, you think this one is science? They're hoping. this one is science. Yeah. <laughs> Garrett and Jay. There you go. Yep. 700,000 active podcasts. It was um, 550,000 a year ago. So that's, yeah. it's still mm. increasing. But yeah, that's active. So, so Jay's um, advice a, is paying off. We've had a was massive increase. <laughs> many more are abandoned. Yeah. The, the amount of YouTube channels and, and, you know, active podcasts are, the numbers explode. Explode, but yeah. then you got to look at the attrition rate because the attrition rate is so interesting. When you watch like the false starts and all that, you know the people yeah. that want to jump in and they don't stick with it. I bet you that there, there. I would love to know. There's no way to find out, but I, I bet you that a, a a decent percentage of new shows, if they stuck with it, would find a footing. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it's because what happens is you get you get this uh you get this fatigue that sets in and. You know, anybody that's made it in podcasting knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> there is this fatigue that you have to allow to become a part of your reality because it is fatiguing to do this. It's like very, you know, I don't want to say repetitive, but there is a very yeah. repetitive nature about it. Right? You have Karen? to think of it like your job. Yeah. yeah. How, right? you, like, you guys how do you do this? But, but you, it's 14 years. Seven, this episode is 750. 750, yeah. Wow. We're at five. We just recorded 545 for Astronomy Cast. Yeah. That's adorable. That's awesome. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm at like, I'm in like 280 something. Well, and we, but, and we take the summer off. So, cause we don't yeah. have the endurance that, that you do. And mm-hmm. the thing is, too, that I think a lot of people don't realize is that as much as you have to treat it like it's a job, you can't have the expectations that it'll pay you like a job. Yeah, and right. so what happens <laughs> is that people think within three months they're going to be making a salary doing this. They're going to make a and bank. That just isn't the talk, case. You know, the market's too love, flooded. Folks. There are too many love. highly produced podcasts now. Like you have to really love podcasting and you have to love the content because you're probably – no, I pay my mortgage with my podcast, my second podcast, um, which actually was my first podcast before I joined you guys. Um, that's a very successful podcast that I can pay my mortgage using it. Yeah. But I still couldn't yeah. survive off of my podcast income. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, right. I, I haven't taken a salary from Astronomy Cast yet. So there you go. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's very common. You do it because you love it. And you, yeah. it, but you, yeah. You know, a lot of people don't expect that. They think they're going to be rich because they see what, you know, this American life is pulling in or what Joe Rogan's uh, pulling in. I was just joking about how YouTube, if humanity were to collapse and, you know, we need to preserve YouTube because the amount of important data that people put into it, you know, how to freaking fix an, you know, your oil heater in your basement, how to, how to unclog it. I had to actually look up advice on how to unclog a super clogged toilet. I'll almost <laughs> always go to TMI, YouTube first TMI. for instructions. Yeah, yeah. So, but on but, anything, but <laughs> podcasts have. Oh my God, the the um, cultural integrity uh, in a sense of podcasts, the the historical references that that podcasting does is profound. Twenty nine million episodes have been published. Holy crap! I actually have a colleague who just defended his thesis in clinical psychology, and he used podcasting as his data analysis tool. He was looking at 
like high performing athletes. And so he combed through a bunch of interviews with these people in podcasts and was able to do a bunch of data analysis on the way that they answered their questions. So what, <laughs> what, so that's wrong. So 54% of us podcast consumers are female while 46% are male. That's, that is fiction. So what is the number? What do you guys think? I would like to say that you just flipped them, but my concern is that maybe it's even wor- a but worse like uh, disparity. No, it's yeah. not that bad. No, it's not that high. It's probably no. more like 60-40. That's your guess, Jay? What's your guess? I mean, my my guess is, is probably a little bit higher than Kara's. Like I would, I would go I would go above 60 probably. And I also, you know, we could talk, we, we're going to get into any of the real details, but it does depend on the podcast. This is the average. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But if you see like a, a, a graph of the content types and the, the male female spread, I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting and, and, and predictable, to be honest. Well, yeah, like true crime or narrative storytelling, those yep. those might skew a little more female, but yep. mm-hmm. almost all of science skews like brutally male. Yeah, I think you guys may be a little biased because we're in the science podcasting. Mm-hmm. The, the statistics, again, according to this this resource that I have, 52% male, 48% female. Wow. Oh, that's good to know that that gap is – That's pretty wow, close. But I, did, I, had, I flipped it to make it enough fictiony enough, but it, mm-hmm. yeah, it was pretty close to 52 to 48 yeah, I guess what I'm looking at, Steve, is um, the number that sticks in my head is the SGU audience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a science podcast. It's definitely Steve, that's a more minor. Now. That's a pretty minor flip you did there, Steve. But Bob, it isn't. It isn't a minor flip. I know that the numbers look deceptively close, but they're not. <laughs> and you have to under yeah. you know this. I, I love saying this. You that's an eight percent shift. That's you're not huge. understanding the statistics there, Bob. It's it's not you know like <laughs> it's it's a big difference. I, I'm it's just going. Difference. I'm just going by historically the kind of uh, shifts that Steve does, and this is not typical. It depends on it depends on how the numbers are being. It, it be? uh, it's not That's applicable right. to every way to look at numbers. The order of magnitude, you know what I mean? Like if percentages, yeah. you can't do an order of magnitude with percentages. Yeah, that's true. Um, but you don't think? I mean, I just, it just has to be enough. I hear what you're saying, Bob. That I, I thought very carefully about how much do I have to make this to make it enough of a fiction. So that I did it as much as I, the minimum I thought I needed to to sucker me in, yeah. especially yeah. since I was flipping this the uh, the sign. You know, there was you had to believe that there were more female yeah. podcast listeners than and men. That's that what was got the me thing. immediately. Yeah, and that's what and Kara yeah. picked up on that. That was the thing that made it the fiction. Although I wonder how much it's how quickly it is changing. Because yeah. I'm sure if it's you went back ten crime. years, it would be, it would be eighty percent male, twenty yeah. percent so. female, right? Yeah. And then sure. so it's it's caught up quickly. And will it hit parity or will it actually accelerate beyond? Is it? Is I think it might accelerate beyond. Yeah, is podcasting? Will it find that it's more listened to women than than by men? So here here are the top five podcasting genres. I'll just tell you right the front: science is not in them. Oh, <laughs> top five: society and culture. Business, comedy, news and politics, and health. Yeah, you know those are all. Yeah. I think pretty even male female kind of topics. You know, almost like yeah, sections of your newspaper how it used to work. Health yeah. is actually probably skews more female. Business maybe a little bit more male. The other ones probably all equal. Mm. I um, would like to say that I loved this show. It was so much fun listening to all the. You know, first off, I completely trust the source. So hearing Fraser talk to us, and like, you know, knowing <laughs> yeah. that I could just let it sink in to, to the inner, uh, you know, inner molecules of my brain, which is the inner J. It's fun. Uh, it was just great to have the, the on-the-spot answers and all that data. Wow, man, you have a catalog of data in your head about space. 
it's it's true. The you know what the thing you should publish a you should publish a journal or something. <laughs> the thing <laughs> yeah. most yeah I should do a I should do a YouTube video. No, the thing that's <laughs> been most valuable to me is doing things live. So mm-hmm. I do a ton of live question shows, things like that, and every time I get something wrong, I get my wrist slapped, and and then I don't get it wrong next time, and yeah. And so after a while, all this data just gets into my head, and it's kind of terrifying. Now I need it out. It's beaten into you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I, I do I highly recommend putting yourself in, a, in an environment where you have to tackle this stuff live because it just sharpens the, sharpens the mind. Yeah. I feel like I'm a no, much better do. science communicator today than I was mm. years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Evan, give us a quote. The deflation of some of our more common conceits is one of the practical applications of astronomy. Carl that's Sagan. A, yeah, that sounds like that's Sagan-esque. Oh, it's so Sagan-esque. <laughs> Sagan-esque. <laughs> Humility, folks. Yeah, thanks, Evan. Yeah, so Fraser, this was awesome. Thank you for joining us. And don't don't be such strangers anytime. Anywhere. Yeah, we, we it won't be ten more years before. We okay, have <laughs> right? We won't we won't require some fan to pretend to be your agent to, <laughs> <laughs> to trick me into having you on the show. Still so brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it worked out well. All right, thank you guys for joining me for this Thanks, special Steve. episode. Thanks, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. This holiday, give the gift of hands-on learning with KiwiCo. KiwiCo subscriptions deliver delight throughout the year with eight subscription lines for kids of all ages. Their hands-on projects expose kids to concepts in STEM, art, and design so they can build problem-solving skills and have a blast while doing it. KiwiCo is offering you the chance to get your first month for free. To redeem this offer, visit kiwico.com slash skeptics.